Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are right in the middle of Revelation. We're to chapter 6 tonight, so turn with me in your Bible or your device or whatever you have. The ESV version is what we're looking at, and we're, we're glad to see you tonight. Welcome to those joining us online. We're having a larger and larger number on Wednesday nights joining us online so we're glad that you've joined us wherever you are and however you may be joining us. And we have a lot of people that watch us several days afterwards. So some of you may be watching online on Thursday or Friday or Saturday or whenever. But all of you are here live and those of you live stream as well, we're glad to have you. It's been a fascinating book so far looking at Revelation and we are to chapter 6. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started tonight looking at that. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Your word is power. Your word is everything that we need. And I pray the Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight in just a powerful way. Lord, I want to thank you that as we open up the seven seals and read about it tonight, God, we know that you're in control. Everything that happens on this earth, we know that you're in control and that Jesus truly is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Father, we make that confession now on this side of the grave, and we just pray that upon that confession that Jesus is Lord, you would be our, our strength and our inspiration and our knowledge tonight as we study your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we are to chapter 6 of Revelation, and so far, just by way of review and summary, uh, you remember what the word revelation is in the Greek language? Apocalypse, that's exactly right. The word apocalypsis in Greek, which is apocalypse, and it means to, to unveil something that's previously hidden is now made known. Something that's been concealed has now come to light. And so that's what the word revelation means. It is a revelation of John, an unveiling of everything that God has previously hidden from us. And so we're going to start looking into some of that that has been hidden previously tonight. It was written to how many churches of Asia Minor? Seven. And where is Asia Minor today? Turkey. Turkey. Absolutely right. And who wrote it? John. Where was he? Patmos. About what year? Man, you guys are awesome. I mean, best students I've ever had right here live. A.D. 90. And he was out on the island of Patmos. And the book of Revelation is a series of visions. More than 60 visions are in here in, uh, in uh, these 22 chapters. And more than 350 references to the Old Testament. We're going to see some references to the Old Testament tonight. More than 350 times uh, the Old Testament is referenced. So chapter 1 was about being on Patmos on the Lord's Day. Saw the vision, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, those are the seven letters to the seven churches. And then starting in chapter 4 and 5, John saw a vision of heaven. Now you remember chapter 4, there was uh, after the seven letters, he saw a door standing open in heaven and Jesus told him, come inside the door. So he went inside the door, saw a large room, which was the throne room of heaven, the throne with God sitting on the throne, and the room was patterned after what? Old Testament temple, exactly right. Pattern, it sounded an awful lot like what we know to be the Old Testament. Actually, the temple was patterned after heaven, not heaven after the temple. But the Old Testament temple, as you read all the descriptions of it, it sounds like what John was describing. God was sitting on his throne, 
elders, 24 elders, living creatures all bowing down and worshiping before the throne. And then we turn to chapter 5 last week and it's still the throne room of heaven, but now Jesus enters the picture. And God is holding a scroll in his right hand and no one's worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. And John began weeping because the scroll would remain unopened, which was the unveiling of what would happen in the rest of human history. And uh, the angels comforted John, don't be afraid. Jesus is worthy, the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. So Jesus took, came forward, opened, took the scroll out of his hand, and the, he was then began to be worshipped, Jesus did, as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. So now he takes his finger and begins to edge it underneath the, beneath the edge of the scroll, loosening it, and he opens, breaks the seals and opens the scroll. And tonight we're going to see what was contained therein. Now, before we get there, I want to again reiterate the methods of interpretation for Revelation. We're going to see those come into play tonight. Remember, there are four primary methods of interpreting Revelation. One is the historical, and that means all the events of Revelation are playing out in history. As you look at a, if you look at a timeline of history, they are playing out, and they have been playing out. Futuristic is you, you, the, all the details of Revelation are all in the future. They haven't happened yet. Only the seven churches have happened. Nothing else has happened. That's the futuristic. The preterist is the past. That means everything in Revelation has already taken place. It took place in the first century when John wrote. That's preter, the word preterist in Latin means past. And so they interpret everything in here as something that's already happened. We can learn from it, but it's already happened. There's nothing futuristic about it. And the fourth view is the idealist, and that is that it's all allegory. It's not really going to happen in real life. It's just an allegory of God being in control of the world. And so those are the four primary interpretations of Revelation. So we're going to see those come into play tonight and how you interpret the seals being opened. So we turn to chapter 6 tonight and just imagine you're John, you're putting yourself there and you're watching with anticipation as very dramatically Jesus takes the scroll, slides his finger beneath the edge of the scroll, loosens the first seal and what do you see? Well, if it's a scroll, you're expecting something to be read, right? It's not. Nothing's read in all the scroll. As soon as the seal is loosened, actions happen. Things begin to happen. And as soon as he loosens the first seal, it triggers a global emergency that triggers a worldwide panic. As soon as the first seal is broken. Now, since we have been through what we've been through the last couple of years, and really the last several years, our imaginations tonight do not have to wander too far to imagine a worldwide panic. We've already been there, haven't we? But there's more. There's a worldwide panic that will take place. Now, if you remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said to his disciples, 
they ask, when are these going to take place? And he said, well, I'm, the exact date, nobody knows, not even the Son of Man. But there will be some signs in the heavens that will show you. And these will be the beginning of the sorrows. Most theologians think whenever the first seal's broken, that is what Jesus was talking about, the, quote, beginning of the sorrows. A lot of people see this as the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Some believe Christians will still be here when all these take place. Others believe Christians will not be here. They'll already be gone uh, whenever these take place. But most theologians feel like this is probably the beginning of what we would know as the Great Tribulation. So, let's look at the scrolls and uh, the seals, and let's begin with verses 1 and 2. First of all, the first seal, the white horse, verses 1 and 2. Now, I watched, John writes, when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the living creatures say, so, so far, he's using his eyes and his ears, two senses, he watched and he heard. I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder. What does that sound like for an angel to speak? This isn't an angelic being. It sounds like thunder. Come. Now, this is the first time in Scripture that we have seen an angel give a command. An angel give a command to another angelic being. And he says, come, verse 2, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. Now remember, horses in these days, they were the war machines. They were the ones that whenever you saw a horse coming or horses coming, it was usually an army invading. That was the army. So it would be like us saying a tank is rolling in. We know war machines as tanks today. Well, the horse was the war machine. I saw a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. All right, stop right there. Let's look at the first seal. As we look at chapter 6, there are seven seals, by the way. As we look at chapter 6, we're going to see six of the seven seals. They're all brief. We'll go through them all tonight. Then there's an interlude in the next two chapters, the next two weeks, of visions. And then the following chapter is the seventh seal. So don't get confused. Six of them tonight, two visions of an interlude, and then the seventh seal three weeks from tonight. Now, with the seals, you begin to see how these various interpretations of Revelation come into play. Are these seals talking about the past, things that have already happened? Preterists say, yep. Are these that will unfold in the course of history? His historical interpreters say, yes. Or all of these things that haven't taken place yet? The futurists would say, yes. So, it makes all the difference which view you look at as to how you interpret all of the seven seals. Now, I will say, I, this is my opinion. I'm of the view that these are more futuristic, that these have not happened yet, and that these will take place once that the seal's broken, that the tribulation begins, and these are futuristic. 
And the reason I believe that is because this is kind of, if you look at Daniel 9 through 12, which we will on Sunday morning when we get there, look at Daniel 9 through 12 and Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus explained about the end, end times, the second coming. If you take all three of these passages together, Daniel 9 through 12, Matthew 24, and this, it appears to be all the same circumstances because the same language is being used. I'll, I'll show you that one in just a moment. So I believe it's futuristic. So, First seal is opened, John sees four horsemen galloping toward him on four horses. These are called the four horses of the apocalypse. Four horses of Revelation. Zechariah chapter 1 talks about the horses of the apocalypse or the revelation. So these are the ones. So I would say probably the most debate Christians get into about Revelation is probably the millenniums, number one. But number two is probably the four horses of the apocalypse. So let's look at them. First horse is white. Now, good guy or bad guy? White horse. Wrong. Bad guy. <laughs> Cowboy movies... White hat, white horse, good guys, right? Well, it appears that way. White horse, oh, victory. You're thinking, oh, it's Jesus. No, it is someone imitating Jesus. The anti-Jesus. The antichrist. How do we know that? Look what happens. Revelation 19, Jesus is riding a white horse. But this is going to be a satanic dictator who appears to be good. Who appears to be benevolent for your good, for the world's good. Who appears to imitate everything good. Now, in your mind, you're thinking, oh, Antichrist, I'll know them right away. No, Jesus said even the very elect could be led astray. You're going to think he's good. Some of you may follow him because you're thinking, oh, white horse, this is, this is good. He will appear to be good and he's going to rule because he's given a crown. Did you notice that? He was given a crown. So he, he appears to be good and he's going to conquer. He has a bow. Jesus has a sword. The Antichrist has a bow. What's the difference? The sword was a Roman instrument of war. The bow was the Greek instrument of war. And so you're looking here, and he, he appears to be good, even that the very elect might be led astray. But what he is doing is he is organizing rebellion against God while all the time appearing to be on the white horse as the good guy. Now, if you remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul is writing about the end time and the Antichrist coming. And if you remember, Paul wrote and said that there is a restraining now, holding back the Antichrist, and one day the restraint is going to be lifted and he's going to be able to come full force. Now, right now we have antichrists in the world, small, I mean, not capital A, but small A and antichrist. 
people who are against God in the world. We have those with us. But God is holding the Antichrist back. He's restraining him. But the restraints are going to be lifted. And he's going to come full force into prominence. And this appears to be the first seal. What happens here? So, he's going to come. Now, you're thinking, not only is he going to do, to do good things, he's also going to make a, uh, an alliance and a covenant uh, for the good, it appears. In fact, he's going to make a, make a covenant with the, with the Jews guaranteeing their peace for seven years. He's going to make a covenant with Israel. It's good. So, tonight, if someone were to appear, appearing to be good, appearing to be godly, makes a deal that's favorable to Israel, you're probably going to be for them, right? Sounds like it. Be careful. Because he's not for the good. Who could this be? We don't know. Who could possibly come as a worldwide leader that appears to be solid? So much so that even the very elect try to follow them. So in our minds, whenever you think Antichrist, we think, oh, I'll, I'll recognize that they're evil. No, no, they, they are evil. But he appears to be good. Who could it be? Well, obviously, we don't know. There have been a lot of theories out there through the years. Uh, some people connect Ezekiel 38, 15 with this passage where we're told in Ezekiel 38, 15 that this person will come from his place, quote, in the far north, meaning north of Israel. What's north of Israel? Lebanon, Turkey. Syria, Ukraine, Russia, that's about it. So, if it means physically north, maybe we're limited to those. However, in the Old Testament, the far north was characterized as the seat of evil. That's where Baal worship was from. In Middle Eastern literature, Baal held council on a mountain north of Israel and marshaled demonic forces to come against Zion. If you look at the history of Israel, almost every time they've been captured, it's been by someone from the north. The only southern kingdom that had control of them was Egypt, and they didn't capture them after they became a nation. They just came out of bondage in Egypt and had, they were established as a country. So, if it's the north, then that's where all of the other enemies have come from. For those of you who've been to Israel with us, when we go to the Valley of Armageddon, which is in the north, by the way, northern part of Israel, if you look at everything the way it's laid out, there is an Air Force base in the, in the Valley of Armageddon right now, an Israeli Air Force base. It is positioned to defend from the north. It appears the person is coming from the north. But how is he going to conquer? Very interesting. He has a bow, verses 1 and 2, 
but he doesn't have any arrows. How do you conquer with a bow only and no arrows? So it appears that he conquers not by war, by other means. It is what a lot of theologians call a bloodless victory he will win, peaceful means. And so a lot of people think, how do you win victories without what warfare? And that's where a lot of theologians feel like technology comes in. They think it's going to be a technological warfare that he controls. A bloodless victory, a technological victory. We don't know, but you're trying to figure, how do you have a bloodless victory? Where you control the world. Well, we can see now, I believe, today, the current political events and the social scene and even the economic scene... For the emergence of such a man, we don't, it, we don't have to stretch our imagination too far to, to picture this, do we? It really no longer seems that far-fetched to us. The recent crises have sparked louder and louder calls for globalism. Even the war in Ukraine, we need to unite globally and we need to stop the wars. And there's more of a cry for a global system of regulation that superintends the whole world where they coordinate nations and you coordinate just efforts as, a, as, as all the nations together and therefore you can, can combat climate change and they, they say and you can combine pandemics and you can fight global inequity and you can con control universal trade and labor laws and wars and even the economy with one currency and we're seeing more and more of this talked about. Now what if that happens and that falls into evil hands? It's exactly what the first seal is talking about. The white horse appearing to be good but is actually the Antichrist to organize rebellion against God. Let's go to the second seal. Verses 3 and 4, the red horse. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. So now the battle happens. Say seal number one, there's no battle. The world was conquered with something other than a battle. But now war happens. But notice in verse 4, he was permitted. God is still in control. He was permitted to do this. And he took peace from the earth. So the emergence of a worldwide dictator will lead to a time now of global warfare and conflict. Notice that this writer does not bring war. He just removes peace. Did you notice that? He didn't bring war. He just removed peace. So whenever you take the peace of God out, chaos happens. So he removes peace. So all the, all over all the world, 
Armies are going to be mobilizing. Weapons will be activated. Diplomats will be rushing from one capital to another capital, trying to figure out what to do. Wars and rumors of wars will rock the planet. And the whole world will enter into conflicts as the leader on the white horse seeks to control everything with a one-world government. Kind of frightening, isn't it? It's gonna, that's what's going to happen. Now, the modern age has been marked by conflict. If you remember, World War II was what? The war to end all wars. Didn't happen. Since World War II, there have been 150 different wars. The, the world averages 36 armed conflicts a year. Did you know that? 36 is the average. And so there's not been peace since World War II. It's getting worse. It's escalating. This will come a time when the red horse appears and the second seal is broken. There will usher in a time where there will be a worldwide war. Now, question, have we already had the appearance of the Antichrist? I don't know. Is what's happening today the emergence of this worldwide conflict? I don't know. Interesting things to think about. So, then we go to the third seal, verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, the black horse, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked. And behold, a black horse. What does black symbolize? Mourning, right? A black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice. Now, how do you hear what seems to be a voice? If you hear something, it's either a voice or not, right? No, this seemed to be a voice. In the midst of the four laboring creatures said, A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. Boy, that's strange, isn't it? What does that mean? Let's talk about it. Third seal's broken and the black horse appears. And the rider is holding something in his hand. It is a pair of balance scales where you measure grain. Warfare in the second seal has now led to famine, the third seal. So, the rider of the black horse is controlling commodity prices. Food is going to be expensive and scarce. Now, warfare has always led to famine, historically. National Geographic said, quote, Wars are inherently violent and harmful, but... The destruction of resources afterwards can be more catastrophic than the bombs and the bullets. Armed conflict can certainly bring about dangerous conditions of food insecurity. Always has. So once the worldwide war has happened, now there will be a need to carefully measure and ration food. 
that is the third one. Third seal, a time of food scarcity. You and I, we don't have to we don't have to use our imaginations very much to see even in our day how COVID has affected the food supply and the food chain and how Russia and in the Ukraine, we, we don't have to imagine, we know it's affected our food chain. It's affected our food supply to a degree. Imagine something globally that affects it much more, much more Severely. Did you ever think during the pandemic that you would, there would be a time in your life you would walk through grocery stores or Walmart and just see empty shelf after empty shelf after empty shelf? I didn't either. Look like a third world country, doesn't it? Some, in fact, you go to some stores, it's still that way. Everything's limited. Even today, it's limited. And so you, you can see how delicate the food supply is in our world. Wouldn't take much. Wouldn't take much at all. Throw that balance off. And notice he says, he heard a voice, or what seemed like a voice, that was yelling out, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts for barley. How much was that? That was 12 to 16 times more than the cost. So imagine tonight, all of a sudden, Food goes up 12 to 16 times is what it is right now. I checked online today. The average price of a loaf of bread is $2.50 across the U.S. Cheaper in some places, higher in others. Average is $2.50 across the U.S. 12 to 16 times that would be $30 to $40 for a loaf of bread. What about gas? Well, if you take the current gas average, 375, that's the average nationwide, 12 to 16 times, 45 to 60 dollars a gallon. That, those prices would greatly impact you and me. If you're paying 40 dollars just for a loaf of bread? Now there had been a day, this would be hard to imagine. Today, I can imagine it. A couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, whenever I have a night where I don't have a whole lot going, I enjoy cooking manicotti. Uh, don't be real impressed. It's the only thing I know how to cook. And, uh, but I love to cook manicotti. And so I dropped by the store and picked up all the ingredients for the manicotti. The ricotta cheese and all this. But I couldn't find any manicotti shells. In fact, the entire pasta section was empty. I thought, that's odd. So I went to a second store. It's empty. All the pasta section, gone. That's odd. Went to a third store. It's all gone. And the thing you think about it, I thought, wow, a lot of people making manicotti tonight. And so I didn't think anything about it. I thought, I'll go home, order some on Amazon. It'll be here tomorrow. I'll cook it tomorrow night. So I went on Amazon and looked. Manicotti shells. Oh, sure. There's one. $52. For a box of 12 shells. Well, obviously I didn't get it. $52. And so I just did a Google search. Why are there no manicotti shells? Oh, there's a wheat shortage in Iowa. Oh, they had a, they had a shortage there in Nebraska, Iowa, Nebraska. And you mean just that one little shortage there 
in those two states affected all of that that much? Imagine the worldwide impact. Not hard to imagine. And so $40 loaf of bread, $60 a gallon for gas. That's the price. The prices are going to skyrocket. That's what the fourth horse says. And so the bare necessities of life are going to be reduced. But did you notice? Oh, why? Don't harm the oil and wine. The oil and wine in biblical days, those are for the wealthy. So if you're really wealthy, you're not affected. Doesn't hurt the oil and wine. It only affects those that are not wealthy when the fourth seal, third seal hits. Let's go to the fourth seal, verses 7 and 8, the pale horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So now fourth horse comes, the four horses of the apocalypse, and his name is Death, except he has someone, or you have a rider and a horse, you have someone following along, walking beside the horse, and that's Hades, which is another term for the underworld or for death. So the rider is going along killing people, and Hades is the hearse picking them up. Taking them to the underworld. So what's going to happen with the fourth seal is there will be a tremendous death toll over the entire world. The dictator, the antichrist, the war, and the famine are going to kill one-fourth of the population. That's about two billion people. Now, these are not deaths of natural causes. These are deaths attributed to the famine and the war and the dictator. It's not just elderly saints who have lived a long life and died of natural causes going to be with the Lord. These are not the deaths that we're talking about. These are, are deaths from the horrible woes that have come on the earth. One-fourth of the world. Now, Matthew 24, Jesus said there will be a great tribulation unlike any the world has ever seen since the beginning of time or ever will be. So that's why it's so bad. This is what Jesus said would happen. So here's a summary. First four seals. Four horses. There's an emergence on the four horses of a worldwide leader, the Antichrist, conquering the world. There will be global warfare that leads to food scarcity and a fourth of the planet dies. Those are the four horses. But remember, who's still holding the scroll? Jesus. Still in control. It appears God's out of control. No. He's in control. He's still holding the scrolls. Still in control. Let's go to the fifth scroll. It's a little odd, a little different. Multitudes who died for Christ. Verses 9 through 11. 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, the first four seals are all horses. This one's a little different. The fifth seal's open, and probably John's expecting another horse to gallop at him, but he doesn't see a horse. He looks into heaven, and he sees an altar. And under the altar are all those people who have died for their faith in Jesus. How many people have died for their faith in Jesus? It's a bunch. The Vatican in 2015, this, this figure has been debated, but the Vatican in 2015 put out the, the report that 100,000 Christians a year are killed for their faith worldwide. 100,000 a year. How many have been killed since the beginning of time? It's a bunch. And so he looked and he saw all of those. Did he see their scars? How did he know that's who it was? So John saw uh, under an, an altar all those who had, had died for their faith. Now here was my question. Is there an altar in heaven? There's not a temple there. We're told there's no temple in heaven. Don't need a temple. Jesus is there. So why is there an altar? Well, some, some believe it's symbolic. Because there's not a physical altar there, so it was symbolic. And, and symbolic of, of Leviticus 4-7, which was the altar in the Old Testament where, where they poured the blood of, of those who'd been killed. Uh, it was verse chapter Leviticus 4-7 says, You shall pour out the remaining blood at the base of the altar as a burnt offering. And so it may be symbolic to those who died for their faith and their blood being poured out as an offering to God. Maybe, so it's symbolic of that, that's possible. But there doesn't seem to be an, a physical altar in heaven. Now, Jews believed that the righteous remain under a heavenly altar, but, but that we're not told that in Scripture. So, it's an altar, mostly, probably symbolic, we don't know for certain, but probably symbolic of everyone who died for the faith. But now listen to what they, they ask. They, oh, oh, dear sovereign Lord, when, when are you going to avenge our blood? Those people took our lives. When are they going to get it? Now, time out. Hold on a second. When Jesus was dying, that didn't sound like what he said. He said, be, be merciful to those. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when Stephen died... He didn't say, get them back, Lord. He said, lay not the sin to their charge. So why would Jesus and Stephen pray for mercy for those that kill them and all these under the altar saying, get them, Lord. How much longer? Well, 
Bible scholars say probably because this is during a period when God's long-suffering is over. The tribulation begins, his long-suffering is past. So maybe that's why, whereas Jesus and Stephen, there's still time for them to repent, whereas now his long-suffering is done. And maybe they saw this fourth seal and went, yes, finally, finally those that oppose God are going to get it. And the response was, uh, easy, hold on, hold on, hold on, y'all rest, rest a little bit longer. Gave him a white robe, which meant victory, you're still victorious. Hold on, just rest a little bit longer. There will be others who die for the faith. And when they join you, then your blood will be avenged. So when John looked, he didn't see everybody who's going to die for the faith yet. wonder if you're going to be in that group. wonder if I'm ever going to be in that group, those who die for the faith. But whenever that number is complete, at that time is when their blood will be avenged. Go to the last seal that we'll close, verses 12 to 17. The sixth seal, natural catastrophes sweep the planet. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the, fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. You don't think of a lamb as being wrathful, do you? They're gentle. Not this lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, the sixth seal opens, and there will be natural disasters in the sky and on the earth that are the precursors to the end of the world. People on earth will be looking for a place to hide from the wrath of God. There seems to be a shaking of the universe. The sky appears to split and go in opposite directions, roll up like a scroll. Isaiah 34, 4 talked about that as well, prophesied that would happen. What causes it? Sounds like an earthquake. Could there be a global earthquake? Well, he looked and it was an earthquake that caused the sun to be darkened and the moon to turn red. Some believe it's a nuclear fallout, like an explosion like an earthquake, and that the sunshine will be dim. Billy Graham was one of those who feels like the end is going to come from a nuclear explosion because the description of it sounds similar. Sky will be darkened, the moon will give only this ghastly red color, the stars will fall from the earth. By the way, it was only 11 years before John wrote Mount Vesuvius erupted. Remember that? One of the most powerful earthquakes of all time. Four major Italian cities just covered and other communities covered. Only 11 years. That was 79 AD. He wrote 90 AD. Only 11 years after that that he wrote about this cataclysmic earthquake at the end. 
But whenever it happens, these events will terrify world leaders and generals and kings and everybody so much that they're going to seek shelter because they're going to see it as the wrath of God. They're not going to say, oh, that was bad. That was a natural disaster. No, they're going to say, that is the wrath of God. And they're going to try to hide from it. Now, all through Scripture, natural disasters have been connected with God and the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah, the day of the Lord, was talked about as a time of desolation on the earth that involved the sun, the moon, the mountains, the hills, the failure of the sun, the moon, the stars, people trying to escape, hide into caves. Joel describes the day of the Lord as earthquakes and trembling heavens and sun and moon and stars. Jesus talked about that will be a day of earthquakes and the sun dimming and the moon and stars following. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, Jesus all talked about natural disasters being signs of God's, not just God's coming, but God's wrath. So, these are the first of the six of the seven seals. Now, one other note before I close. Here's the confusing part. It doesn't appear that all of these are sequential or chronological. So, in other words, Antichrist, okay, that seal's over. Wrap it up. Then there's war. Okay, that happens. All right, now the food. Okay, now the, it doesn't appear that it's sequential. They could be simultaneous. Or one could happen before the other. See why Revelation gets confusing sometimes? So, that's just to say, these are the events that will take place. It never tells us in that order. They may be in that order, or they may not. Now, here's the frightening part. We'll close. All of these six seals are simply a foreshadowing of something worse that's coming. The great day of wrath... Still coming. It's not here yet. These are all just the foreshadows. This is the this is the salad before the main end of the morning, the main entree. These are the precursors, the pre-shocks. And many of these events will drive some to their need of accepting the gospel and receiving Jesus. And so next Wednesday night, we're going to talk about 144,000 Jews God raises up for a specific purpose after the seals are opened. Questions or comments? We've got about 30 seconds is all. Yes. I'm sorry. What was it? If they're not in order, why? We're just told to set the question is, if it's not in order, why the seals, first seal, second seal, third seal? It's just different seals that are open. It doesn't necessarily say, once this is open, this is all done, then this one's done, and this one's done. Yeah, exactly. Now, they could be. We're just not told that they are. Right. By Jesus or by John, either. Yes. Okay, sure. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. If I thought it was like junk mail, he's not answering, he just told me to say, I feel like he answers every prayer. It may not be yes, I'll do it, because he's not 
Yes. Good, good question. Let me repeat that for those online didn't, didn't hear it. From last week, chapter 5, verse 8, was talking about the, uh, the prayers that were the prayers of the saints and the incense, how those were connected, and that those could possibly be, and most scholars believe those are unanswered prayers. Now, those are not unanswered individual prayers of said person's life. They were unanswered prayers, I mentioned it last week, of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer that's been unanswered because up to this point, that, that hasn't happened. It has not happened on earth as it is in heaven. And so, and we're taught to pray that. We're taught to pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven. So all the unanswered prayers were not just unanswered prayers of you to pray for your spouse or to pray for a loved one or pray for a job. Or, those, are un, those are the prayers specifically unanswered. That's what scholars believe. Specifically unanswered prayers of thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That hadn't happened yet, but it will at that time. That, that was the unanswered prayer. The unanswered prayers would be answered at that time, and that's the, that's the one unanswered prayer, not, not everything. So, good question. Very good. All right, we'll wrap up and close, and we'll pick up next week, <clears throat> chapter 7 of Revelation. Father, thank you tonight for your word. And God, sometimes as we read this, it's frightening, it's disturbing, but we still know who holds the world, who is in control. Father, our trust is in you. And I just pray that you'd help us walk each day with a confident assurance of who you are and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.